Welcome to Making Sense of the Madness. Time to expand your thinking. I'm your host, Sean Morgan. I'm stepping in for John Michael Chambers. He's taken a bit of a health break. He'll be back uh, in about a month. And in the meantime, he's going to keep on doing his Sunday podcast for premium subscribers. And he's going to be doing a few high-profile interviews in the meantime as well. So John's doing fine, and I'm just taking him his place for the meantime. All right, well, let's get right into the breaking news, which is going to be interesting. I've got two themes for the day. One is military escalation, and the other is the fact that the GOP seems to be on the offensive. So let's dig right into it. So first of all, Russia is launching its biggest Pacific exercise since the Cold War. And this is at the same time that Putin and Biden are meeting right now in Europe. Let's take a look at that on the screen. And on the other side of the world, you know, Biden and Vladimir Putin are meeting face to face. But 300 miles off the coast of Hawaii, Russia is quietly launching one of the largest naval exercises since the Cold War. And this sent uh, some fighter jets in Hawaii scrambling to go check to see what the Russians were doing. Now, the Russians did not like invade the American airspace or anything, uh, but it certainly is a show of force. During this critical time when Joe Biden's doing a lot of tough talk against Putin. And so this is uh, pretty interesting uh, to see this type of military show of force at this time. But it's not just Russia. It's not just the United States responding to this Russian show of force. It's also China. Let's take a look at the next article where China's sending a record 28 fighter jets invading that, that airspace that's disputed in Taiwan. Right after, um, right after this issue from NATO, where you know they were basically acknowledged that China was a security challenge, and so this seems to be a, a direct res military response from that diplomatic message. Just twenty-eight fighter jets—that's quite a show of force as well. So you know, while China has over the past few months since Biden took office, flown near daily groups of aircrafts and bombers near or in Taiwan contested airspace. The latest comes as Biden is in Europe, shoring up support among allies for a tougher united front against Beijing. So let's go to the next thing on the screen, which is Biden's NATO warning to Putin. If you don't cooperate, we will respond. And I have to say, this is quite an impotent and uh, lame kind of confrontation from Biden. I mean, if you look at the videos of them meeting, uh, you know, you can tell who seems to be in control and who seems to be clueless. And during Biden's Monday press conference at the end of the NATO summit in Brussels, Biden said, I will tell you this, I'm going to make clear to President Putin that there are areas where we can cooperate if he chooses. And if he chooses not to cooperate and acts in a way that he has in the past relative to cybersecurity and some kind of activities, then we will respond and we will respond in kind. So that was Biden trying to put on a tough face with Putin. But I have to say, it doesn't really seem like it worked uh, because there Putin in while Biden was just using words, Putin was showing 300 miles off the coast of Hawaii, exactly who the real tough guy is. And um, and so, you know, no matter what Biden says, uh, Putin's actions are stronger than Biden's words. Let's look at what the U.S. military is up to in the next article, how the U.S. Indo-Pacific commander is requesting $890 million to strengthen military equipment in Guam, Alaska, and Hawaii. 
Now, why do you think this military commander needs almost a billion dollars in those specific geographical regions? It's pretty obvious it's in the East. The threat is in the East. The threat is specifically China, and he wasn't afraid to name China as the, re the reason why he's requesting almost a billion dollars. Let's take a look at the war and the escalation that continues to happen in the Middle East. Is the ceasefire actually over? Because the Israeli jets are attacking after the Hamas sent some balloons that uh, you know caught things on fire. So they sent some incendiary balloons in Gaza. And so 20 fires were sparked by these balloons and uh, Israel military aircraft attacked Hamas uh, compounds after this kind of thing. So it doesn't look like much of a ceasefire to me. So you've got Russia doing these military exercises, China doing major military exercises. You've got the U.S. requesting a billion dollars to, to fight China. And now in the Middle East, you've got the Israel-Iran type of dynamic with Hamas being a proxy. So uh, military escalation is happening worldwide. I'm going to keep on following up in future episodes of Making Sense of the Madness to track this military escalation as well. So let's take a look at the next topic, which is a Fox 26 reporter, Ivory Hecker, is releasing, just like we talked about yesterday, she's releasing the facts about how she was censored by Fox News. And this is really interesting because yesterday we talked about how she was on live TV and she said to everybody, I am going to release the secret bombshells of how Fox is censoring me. And, you know, she did it live on air while she was delivering a weather report. And, uh, and then she got fired because she did that. And now today uh, she did that interview with Project Veritas and she laid it all out very specifically uh, who in the Fox organization was censoring her and what they were censoring her about. And I found it especially interesting that it was kind of mid-level producers who were really, uh, really, really against her doing any type of investigative reporting regarding COVID-19 and hydroxychloroquine. So this is interesting because you had even people at the very top of the organization who were pro-Trump and were kind of on her side and encouraging her, and yet it was these mid-level, lower-level producers who were just completely going lockstep with the mainstream narrative and trying to muzzle her and stop her from doing her job. And so this is beautiful to see at this critical juncture in American history to see people like this local reporter standing up and showing the truth that this is how people in the journalism industry are controlled. And so this is waking people up to the fact that hydroxychloroquine could be an effective and safe treatment for COVID-19, and yet it was censored and it was stopped. Why is there agenda behind that? And so go to Project Veritas, just do a search for them. You can find this interview and you can see the full 20-minute interview where she lays it all out about how they wouldn't let her do stories about Bitcoin, about hydroxychloroquine, about censorship. She lays it all out there, and she's a hero, and I hope that she has a bright future in journalism as a result. The next story I want to get into is this January 6th hoax that we've been covering 
First, let's look on the screen how the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security attempted to recruit a Green Beret to infiltrate Oath Keepers right before the January 6th riot. And guess what? He recorded the whole thing. That's right. This guy's a patriot. He wanted to join the Oath Keepers to defend uh, the Constitution. And he was approached by the government, uh, two separate organizations, FBI and DHS. They took him out to dinner and he was he was recording the whole thing. And within 38 seconds of them talking to him at this dinner, they started recruiting him to infiltrate the Oath Keepers. So this is very interesting because this is blowing up. This is going mainstream about how the government itself is implicated. And we're going to keep on going down this line of thinking. Let's look at the next story about how the Proud Boys is already infiltrated by the FBI. In fact, the leader of the whole organization is openly an FBI informant. This is in uh, Forbes magazine. So if Proud Boys and Oath Keepers and everybody has FBI informants in them, uh, then you know that's something that we should definitely be paying close attention to. And luckily, the GOP, certain elements of the GOP are actually standing up and asking these types of questions. So let's take a look at how Matt Gates is calling on the FBI Director Christopher Wray to fully disclose the role and involvement of FBI operatives during the January 6th Capitol riot. This is a letter he sent today. This is breaking news. And so we need answers. We need to find out if the FBI was involved. And we're going to press even deeper into this issue. Take a look at America's Congressman Paul Gosar uh, pressing Christopher Wray about the identity of the officer who shot and killed Ashley Babbitt. Let's take a look at that video. So now switching gears again. Director Ray, do you know who executed Ashley Babbitt? I, no, I don't know the name of the person okay. who. So was do you agree that Ashley, Ashley Babbitt, Babbitt was unarmed? I, I, no, I really can't weigh in on the facts and circumstances of that case. As you may know, that was investigated by the uh, D.C. Metro's Internal Affairs Department with the DOJ Civil Rights Division and the U.S. Attorney's Office, and the FBI well, was not it's, it's, it's investigative agency. Yeah, it's a disturbing. The Capitol Police officer that did the shooting, Ashley Babbitt, appeared, appeared to be hiding, lying in wait, and they gave no warning before killing her. Question again, why hasn't that officer that executed Ashley Babbitt been named when police officers around the country are routinely identified after a shooting? Comment on that case. It's not one that we've been directly involved in, so I really can't agree or disagree with your characterization. Sounds good. Do you approve of lethal force against unarmed citizens, particularly a 110-pound woman with no warning, no use of no, uh, no non-lethal force prior, and while laying in wait? Not going to try to answer a hypothetical, especially one based on a case that I just said. That actually said. wasn't really a hypothetical. That. That's actually what, what had happened. So luckily, there are some people in the GOP who are asking the right questions, and they're putting pressure on these bureaucrats. And I think we're going to get to the bottom of this. President Trump has been interestingly very quiet on these this subject. And... Uh, 
there's been a vacuum, you know, because Trump's not talking about it. Someone else has to step in, step up and talk about it besides people like us in the alternative media. So the GOP's finding a backbone and they're doing it finally. But also Vladimir Putin is. We're going to get into that a little bit later. But let's t- first go into this video from Tucker Carlson because the FBI operatives possibly were organizing the attack on the Capitol. And Tucker goes into the detail about the documents that show these unindicted co-conspirators. Let's, let's watch that video. And urgently, because as the attorney general reminded us today, a lot depends on the answers. And at least one news organization is asking that. Revolver News. It's a news site. It's turned out to be one of the last honest outlets on the Internet. A new piece on Revolver.News suggests an answer to some of these questions. We know that the government is hiding the identity of many law enforcement officers who were present at the Capitol on January 6th, not just the one who killed Ashley Babbitt. According to the government's own court filings, those law enforcement officers participated in the riot, sometimes in violent ways. We know that because without fail, the government has thrown the book at most people who are present in the Capitol on January 6th. There was a nationwide dragnet to find them, and many of them are still in solitary confinement tonight. But strangely, some of the key people who participated on January 6th have not been charged. Look at the documents. The government calls those people unindicted co-conspirators. What does that mean? Well, it means that in potentially every single case, they were FBI operatives. Really? In the Capitol on January 6th. For example, one of those unindicted co-conspirators is someone government documents identify only as Person 2. According to those documents, Person 2 stayed in the same hotel room as a man called Thomas Caldwell, an insurrectionist, a man alleged to be a member of the group The Oath Keepers. Person 2 also, quote, stormed the barricades at the Capitol on January 6th alongside Thomas Caldwell. The government's indictments further indicate that Caldwell, who, by the way, is a 65-year-old man, this dangerous insurrectionist, was led to believe there would be a, quote, quick reaction force also participating on January 6th. That quick reaction force, Caldwell was told, would be led by someone called Person 3, who had a hotel room and an accomplice with him. But wait, here's the interesting thing. Person 2 and Person 3 were organizers of the riot. The government knows who they are, but the government has not charged them. Why is that? You know why. They were almost certainly working for the FBI. So FBI operatives were organizing the attack on the Capitol on January 6th, according to government documents. And those two are not alone. So, you know, Tucker's really driving it home that these FBI agents, the FBI, the CIA, these three letter agencies, they're rotten to the core. They're part of the deep state. They have a bad agenda. And, you know, what's interesting is that John Cardillo really just summed this up perfectly because we know that the FBI, the CIA, these types of organizations, if they do infiltrate bad uh, militias or whatever, they're supposed to stop riots and insurrections and kidnappings and murders before they happen. But instead, they're actually making them happen. Let's let's see that uh, that on the screen. What John Cardillo had to say about FBI operatives getting involved in these types of things.
Let's simplify this. FBI concocted the plot to kidnap Governor Whitmer, had their operatives act as kidnappers, and found a bunch of moron patsies that they labeled as Trump supporters and conservatives. It appears they did the exact same thing on January 6th. It's time to abolish the FBI. Yeah, so John makes a really good point here. I mean, there are so many unanswered questions about not only that operation and with the Governor Whitmer, but with January 6th, all these pipe bombs that were supposedly put there, uh, you know, the Ashley Babbitt case where we don't know who shot her and why they shot her and why he hasn't had any type of, uh, you know, any type of investigation into him. And then you have these, this police officer, officer Brian Sicknick, who died of a heart attack the next day. And the mainstream media was saying that he got hit with a fire extinguisher, but it wasn't true. And then you had several police officers who died of suicides right after January 6th. So uh, this is a deep state thing. We know that Antifa and BLM were embedded there. We know that CNN was embedded there. Uh, we've got patriots who were led in the door by the police who 300 out of the 800 were just let through the front door. They were waved in by the DC police. And now some of those people are in solitary confinement and they're being, they're suffering under strange and unusual punishment. So uh, I, I do think there's a reason that Trump is silent on this, that Trump is uh, waiting for the right moment to pounce on this when the evidence is a smoking gun. Uh, in the meantime, it does give the GOP a chance to step up. And it interestingly also <laughs> allowed Putin to also talk about it. So let's let's take a listen to what Putin had to say on the, about this whole thing. Let's listen to his video now. Recently had very severe events after well-known events after the, after the killing, killing of an African-American. And an entire movement developed known as Black Lives I'm not going to comment on that, but here's what I do want to say. What we saw was disorder, destruction, violations of the law, etc. We feel sympathy for the United States of America, but we don't want that to happen on our territory. And we're doing our utmost in order to not allow it to happen. And uh, some fears that has nothing to do with anything. Please. Could you give me the microphone, please? You didn't answer my question, sir. If all of your political opponents are dead, in prison, poisoned, doesn't that send a message that you do not want a fair political fight? As for who is killing whom or throwing whom in jail, people came to the U.S. Congress with political demands. 400 people, over 400 people had criminal charges placed on them. They faced prison sentences of up to 20, maybe even 25 years. They're being called domestic terrorists. They are being accused of a number of other crimes. Uh, Seventy of them were arrested right away after the events, and 30 of them are still under arrest. It's unclear on what grounds. And as for the, nobody from the official authorities has informed us about it. 
Some people, some people died, and uh, one of the people that died, they were simply shot on the spot by uh, the police, although they were not threatening the police with any weapons. In many countries, the same thing happens that happens in our country. I'd like to stress once more that we sympathize with what happened in the United States, but we have no desire to allow the same thing to happen in our country. Uh, just a couple of more questions, uh, because later the, the president will continue his program. Please hand over the microphone. I'm from Izvestia. Were you able to reach an agreement on returning some of the Russians that ended up in American prisons? If yes, then when will that happen? We talked about it. President Biden. So there you have it. Uh, the president of Russia is standing up for conservative political dissidents. Uh, and you have Tulsi Gabbard, who is a Democrat, also doing the same thing. Uh, so it makes you wonder, where has the GOP been since January 6th? Uh, but, you know, I bet the liberal heads are just exploding after they listen to that type of response, because there's just some kind of cognitive dissonance when you listen to that and you try to hold one belief about how it was an insurrection. And then you hear the facts about how an unarmed person was killed by the police. Uh, so, you know, this is waking people up. This is the Great Awakening. Sometimes it comes from the most unlikely source, from Vladimir Putin, uh, but it's happening and it's a slow, slow at first, but it builds up, it becomes a tidal wave. And so I'm looking forward to that. And now I'm going to get into how the GOP and how different people are just standing up for what's right. It's beautiful to see. Uh, let's take a look at how Biden's oil and gas lease ban was blocked by a federal judge. So this, this federal judge in Louisiana blocked Joe Biden's suspension of new oil and gas leases on federal land and water. And that's delivering a setback to his administration's efforts to transition away from fossil fuels. Technically, the injunction amounts to a halt of the Biden administration's suspension of new drilling permits with a nationwide effect. So, you know, this is kind of a temporary measure. This is still playing out in the courts. But Biden is getting some pushback from the judiciary branch uh, with his new Great Reset plan to just end oil and gas as fast as possible. So it's good to see. I mean, in Louisiana, you know, it's like a significant percentage of their entire economy is from offshore drilling. And so, uh, yeah, they, they have a, a major incentive to keep that going as far as their economy and all the workers in Louisiana. So that judge in Louisiana said, sorry, Biden, oh, you can't do this. But it's not just judges who are standing up. Let's take a look at how Rand Paul is demanding the exclusion of the Wuhan lab funders from investigations. Appearing on Fox News, uh, Senator Paul said, here's the problem. The World Health Organization investigated this the first time. We suggested three people to send to China. They rejected all three and they accepted a guy named Peter Daszak, who was the one that funded the lab. The senator continued, so you can't, can't have the people like Anthony Fauci or Peter Daszak, who are part of the funding mechanism to these funds to Wuhan lab, you can't have them investigating themselves. They have a definite conflict of interest because if this pandemic started in a lab that the U.S. was funding, the people advocating for the funding obviously will have culpability, at least moral culpability. And, you know, that's at the very least. And he says, at the least, moral culpability. Let's talk about at the most. At the most, it's criminal. 
it's legal culpability. And so that's going to be interesting. You can't have the people who funded that lab who are guilty of crimes against humanity. You can't have them investigating the origin of the leak. Uh, you, have, you have to have some kind of, uh, you know, objective third party. And so Rand Paul standing up, putting his name on a letter to demand more transparency, more emails from Fauci and all of Fauci's underlings. So the GOP is on the offensive. They're starting to fi finally fight back against these bureaucrats. And, uh, you know, we're going to get to the bottom of this. And it's not going to be pretty, actually, uh, but, but it's going to happen. The GOP is also standing up against the indoctrination of our children, Let's take a look at the next article about how GOP lawmakers are unveiling a bill to defund the 1619 Project, which is an offshoot of the Marxist teaching model, critical race theory. And it's been criticized for attempting to rewrite American history as fundamentally racist and disregarding the merits of the nation's founding documents. The controversial project has been panned by historians as having false information. So finally, the GOP is saying, no, you can't indoctrinate our kids to hate America and hate ourselves and to be racist. Uh, so this is a, a step in the right direction. The final headline I want to take a look at is how, you know, this Mo Brooks, who's a GOP guy, he has an arrest warrant out for Swalwell. Uh, Eric Swalwell, who's, you know, in Congress, he's a Democrat. He slept with a Chinese spy. And so Swalwell was saying that uh, Mo Brooks and, and, and President Trump, they incited a riot at January 6th, and he hired a private investigator, and he wanted to serve him with legal papers. So instead of just delivering the papers to his home or his office, he sent a private investigator who just walked into his home. His wife was home alone. And she was scared to death by this guy and chased him out of the house. So now that guy who trespassed on um, Representative Mo Brooks' house, is now he has an arrest warrant out. So that's just an example of how the GOP is no longer just sitting back and allowing the Democrats to run all over them, but they're actually standing up to them. And they're on the offensive now. So this is a beautiful thing to see. So that concludes my monologue for today. Uh, it's interesting to see the military escalation. It's great to see the GOP on the offense. And uh, we're going to get into an awesome interview next after Sovereign Advisors break. This, this guy, uh, Jay Dyer, is an author. He's a host of Hollywood Decoded. This guy knows everything about the Great Reset and Klaus Schwab. And uh, we're going to get into the esoteric Hollywood books that he wrote. Um, it's going to be a really interesting interview. So just hold on, listen to this uh, word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with our guest. Gold is near all-time highs. Has it reached its peak? Did you miss the boat? No, I don't think so. The exploding debt, change in the interest rate cycle, political and economic turmoil have caused the current move in gold. And those things are getting worse. In fact, Citibank projected gold to hit $3,000 an ounce over the next 12 to 18 months. I encourage you to protect and grow your investment portfolio with gold. I trust Dr. Kirk Elliott with Sovereign Advisors. With over 25 years of experience and two PhDs, Kirk Elliott is the best of the best in the industry. Call his office at 720-605-3900 and tell him Sean Morgan sent you, or just click on the link in the description to get that free consultation. 
All right. Jay Dyer is an author, comedian, and TV presenter known for his deep analysis of Hollywood, geopolitics, and culture. His graduate work focused on psychological warfare and film, and he is the author of two books, Esoteric Hollywood 1 and 2, and the co-creator and co-host of the television show Hollywood Decoded. He has been featured on numerous popular shows, podcasts, and debates with some of the world's top debaters. Let's welcome Jay Dyer to our show. Thank you. Glad to be here. It's an honor. Thank you, Jay. We really want to get to the bottom of this great reset and this character, Klaus Schwab, uh, and their their agenda. World Economic Forum, it all seems to be coming out of Switzerland, and you study these cults, uh, and a lot of them seem to have that connection to Switzerland. Uh, can we start there? Tell me a little bit about Klaus Schwab. Well, I see kind of a figure who is a front man. I don't know that he necessarily controls it all, but a lot of times they'll pick people who maybe have interesting backgrounds or prominent families to be the front face of some kind of big agenda. And so um, there, you know, there's there's accounts or uh, allegations, at least, that his family did, did have connections to uh, the SS and this kind of stuff. I don't know if that's true, but what is verifiable is that um, the worldview that he's presenting, what he's trying to push is a long-term strategy to create basically a technocratic global government. Uh, and it's one that includes a lot of previous uh, revolutionary philosophies that ultimately relate to post-humanism, getting rid of humanity, uh, merging humanity with machines. Uh, this is all in his uh, recent Fourth Industrial Revolution book in the last third of the book. Basically, it's all devoted to this and uh, really just replacing humanity as a whole. And so it's a very revolutionary philosophy, but it's not revolutionary in the sense that maybe we typically think of it. It's several centuries of revolution uh, geared towards uh, technocracy. That really brings to mind other billionaire oligarchs like Bill Gates and Elon Musk. Can you tell me how you yeah. think they fit into this whole thing? Well, essentially, they all have roughly the same worldview. They have the same idea about how to fix uh, their sort of a, a more evolved cast of people that uh, feel that it's incumbent upon them to become what 1984 calls the priests of power, right? The, the O'Brien character feels that it's his duty to essentially um, control the minds of men. And I just reviewed and, and redid 1984. I'd read it, you know, many years ago, and I was just kind of shocked at how uh, prescient it was on so many levels. I mean, everybody knows, yeah, 1984 predicts, you know, a surveillance state. It predicts a kind of a technocratic world order, blah, blah, blah. So what? No, it's actually very, very nuanced. And, you know, when you look at characters like O'Brien, which are kind of, you know, archetypal villains, probably the worst villains in all of <laughs> fiction, he's probably one of the worst easily. Uh, you know, you see the exact same pattern of a Fauci, of, of a Klaus Schwab, of a Bill Gates, uh, of an Elon Musk in these kinds of characters who um, literally, in the case of Elon, comes from a family whose, uh, you know, his predecessors were part of the technocratic origin. I mean, the, the idea of technocracy that in the 20, early uh, 20th century, 1920s and 30s, I mean, his family was involved in that movement. So these are people who really believe that you can replace all Western values, et cetera, with uh, this sort of Darwinian thesis that is not just the idea of evolution, but the idea of evolving into becoming, as I said, post-human. So this is the idea that humanity itself is the problem. You can go to documents like the Club of Rome back in the 
uh, the, the first global revolution, when they put, put out that document that dealt with how humanity is the problem, and if we could just destroy most of humanity through excuses like pollution, the environment, the climate, etc., then we can have a great reset. We could go back to year zero, right? If you're familiar with, as I said, revolutionary philosophy, back to, say, uh, Adam Weishaupt, people like this out of the Enlightenment, the idea of the Jacobins in the French Revolution was to get back to year zero, to start over everything, erase all of the tradition and culture prior to that, and have a fresh start, right? The same idea comes up in Mao's Cultural Revolution, just wipe out everything, have a fresh start. And that's really literally where... Uh, Klaus and his uh, uh, billionaire oligarch cronies are drawing from is the previous revolutions, but this is the final revolution, the one that Aldous Huxley said would be to bring in that brave new world scenario. Yeah, and Aldous Huxley really touched upon the medical tyranny aspect of it and the geo, you know, the genetic engineering as well. Uh, so it's crazy how these books are 50 plus years old are like super accurate with our reality now. So can you yeah, tell us, absolutely. you know, you study, you study cults and um, a lot of them do have that connection in Switzerland as well. And I was wondering, you know, they want to play God. They want to like, you know, in the same way that from the biblical story, you know, God started with a genetic creation from, from scratch. And then with the, mm. the flood of Noah, he did the same thing again. It seems like they want to play God and they want to do that for themselves from their own philosophy what is is it just a technocratic philosophy or is there some kind of esoteric spiritual kind of religion to it uh both and i mean you have some members of the elite that i'm sure don't actually believe in anything supernatural they just see it as the natural process itself right of some determined chemical process that produces higher and higher beings or something like this and so that but that's just as amenable to uh this Darwinian ascent model, as is any uh, Luciferian or esoteric type position. So they all meld very well together in the fact that they're basically seeking to become gods, as is mentioned in, uh, you know, the fall in Genesis, through uh, other means, right, through technocratic means in this case. If we learn the secrets of nature, then we can, you know, become post-human. We can fix the problems in the world. So if I was to liken it to kind of a uh, a hermetic dictum or a secret society type of dictum great work of alchemy which is the idea that man through his technology and learning the secrets of nature can fix what's broken in nature so we see death we see decay we see corruption these kinds of things and in the christian paradigm the idea is oh well that's right the work of christ that's what the gospel is is the reparation of what adam lost and so forth well, in the Gnostic, Luciferian, esoteric, you know, transhumanist paradigm, that's all transferred not from Jesus, but, in, but not through Christ, but into technology and into uh, chemistry and these sorts of disciplines by which man himself will be his own savior. So absolutely, it is a total Tower of Babel. Uh, uh, it, all the things that we see in Genesis, ironically, are like repeated, which could suggest perhaps that Genesis is actually true. I know that's like the craziest thing for anybody to say nowadays, that Genesis is actually accurate. But it does seem to have uh, so many of these messages and, and warnings about the Tower of Babel and so forth, by which man tries to erect his own salvation through... Um, political means, technocratic means, social means, socialism, all of these different isms that uh, attempt to to create this um, 
you know, new world, this new aeon. And that's something that the, the occultists talk about, whether it's Crowley or whether it's any of these other figures. They believed in the instantiation of a new eschaton, a new aeon, a, a new era that would be uh, characterized by man as God. So why do they tell us about their plans to eradicate us? You know, like the Georgia Guidestones, the United Nations, Agenda 2030, the Club of Rome. Is there something to that as part of their own philosophy that they believe they need to inform us and get our consent somehow? Or is it just, uh, you know, how do you make sense of that? Well, again, I think if, if there are if there's members of the elite that do believe in ceremonial magic and esoteric stuff, then yes, they think that it's a kind of a ritual to kind of uh, subdue you and sort of gaslight you, right? But from a psychological warfare perspective, if you if you read 1984, as I was mentioning, you would know that's precisely what O'Brien's doing to Winston. Is that when Winston starts questioning, right? O'Brien basically gives him a lot of truth, right? I mean, that whole interview, that that famous sequence back and forth when O'Brien's being tortured, it's really just uh, O'Brien gaslighting Winston and, and the overdose of gaslighting and, and at the same time telling him the truth, right? Um, basically just putting it all out there. Uh, 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 this ultimately leads Winston to where he gives up. And so there's there's different ways that you can that you can do these strategies to tell something ahead of time has a, the effect of conditioning people. It stays in your subconscious right forever. So you're already kind of primed for it. And fiction plays a key role in that. You know, the, the fiction has been used on the part of uh, the state for propaganda all the way back to the ancient world. Vir Virgil's Aeneid is a state propaganda piece. Uh, Edmund Spencer's Fairy Queen is a state propaganda piece. So. This is a thing that has gone on for a long time, but um, in more recent times, I, I speculate and I put in my books that I think science fiction has a, a huge role in conditioning and preparing us for the acceptance of things that we might initially be queasy about. And a, a great example of that is the figure of H.G. Wells himself. And he's really the father of modern uh, propaganda and psychological warfare because uh, not only did he actually do psychological warfare and propaganda, he's the most famous 20th century uh, you know, science fiction figure. So all of these Hollywood movies, all of these things that prepared us for aliens and for genetic engineering, right? Dr. Alan Dr. Moreau, and we've got uh, worlds and we've got time machine, you know, all of these things with uh, nuclear bombs, atomic bombs, all that stuff is out of the world of H.G. Wells. So that's the classic example of preparing us for this stuff. In fact, H.G. Wells wrote a famous book, uh, Shape of Things to Come, which more or less predicts World War II. It came out actually years before, and he predicted another great world war, which would involve you know, uh, a large degree of aerial assaults and so forth. So uh, very prescient, uh, but that's because he was in the circles as a kind of outer party member of this uh, Western elite that was behind all of this. And so he knew what the plans were because he worked for them as one of their, quote, helpers as part of the outer party. Um, and that's all detailed in, in many establishment books, by the way. And I'm sure that's what you get into in your two books is how Hollywood is this institution of psychological warfare. Um, and, and the great documentary Out of Shadows really uh, brought that to the public consciousness in the past year, um, mm. how the government, the intelligence agencies, the military, uh, they're all embedded there in Hollywood. And I found it interesting yeah. that there were TV shows and books which in crazy detail 
uh, foreshadowed the COVID-19 out of Wuhan, specifically out of Wuhan, China, um, and all the lockdowns and all the different policies. And uh, I agree that uh, they are gaslighting us. They're trying to get us into submission. I think that's what the the nasal and anal swabs are all about, you know, just penetrating us, getting us to accept that penetration from them. It's like a form of rape and uh, to get us to submit to them. And then the vaccines, even if this vaccine isn't super deadly, it certainly is priming people for the next vaccine that they're going to demand that we get. And once you accept it one time, you're more likely to accept it the next time. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, and uh, I don't mean to offend anyone, but, you know, Out of Shadows obviously had taken a lot of material from my books and didn't give any credit. So I really wish that they had, you know, cited what they were, where they were getting information. But the book doesn't include any citations, but obviously there was really specific sequences and scenes uh, that were coming from my material and my, my wife's books as well. So, um, but yeah, I mean, the, the material is correct. The information is accurate. And yeah, there's a lot of instances of, um, films that were predicting a lot of dystopian films that were kind of preparing us, I think, for these kinds of scenarios that help to cause people to uh, not question, right? Again, it's it's a conditioning mechanism mainly. There's other things that these kinds of uh, do, but largely it's conditioning. And so I think um, you were right to point at the notion of violation. Uh, and if, you, if you've studied cults and if you've studied uh, trauma, um, that's really what O'Brien does to Winston again, right? He, he wants to violate Winston to get Winston to submit, and he traumatizes him, and eventually it works. And if you studied MKUltra, if you studied the, the history of those operations, what they were doing was on, a, an, on an individual scale, learning how the mind works and how to traumatize and cause dissociation. So it doesn't have to be some sort of extreme situation where a per person has multiple personalities. Um, there's a, 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 a simpler sense of this, which is to get people to accept contradictory narratives, contradictory claims in media and so forth, the fake news media and whatnot. And that's exactly the world that they produced is that kind of a world. And so the, the whole situation that we've seen in the last year with upping the ante through the masks and through the, the, the these are essentially I, I see them like a bondage cult. Like if you've studied the way that ritual uh, trauma and abuse can occur with people in sex cults and things like this. Uh, this is very similar to how they are turned into broken people through these these strategies and techniques. And so that's what they're doing with the mass and with the violating uh, of our bodies themselves or a form of um, traumatization, which causes people to go into dissociative and catatonic states. You know, you're really hitting on something there, talking about the bondage uh, sex cult aspect of this. I mean, the governor of New York was caught wearing nipple rings during the middle of his his public, you know, delivery. And it makes you wonder if he was doing that on purpose, showing the world that or if someone forced him to do it. Uh, but it was it was really in your face. And uh, and there are other people. Um, involved in the steal of the election, uh, who uh, Eric Coomer, who who also you know has all these videos and pictures of him with nipple rings as well. So they're they're showing a hidden side of of themselves there, um, and, and there seems to be a sort of uh, low grade trauma based and sex based mind control through Hollywood and through the news going on to all of us at all times. Um, but then there are the, the examples of 
like you said, where it's really, really um, specific to serial killers, for example, uh, perhaps uh, certain celebrities, uh, where there's disassociation of multiple personalities. And you go into the serial killers a lot in your work. Can you tell us a little bit about the connections between serial killers and mind control and the, uh, the deep state? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think that one thing that a lot of people probably aren't aware of is how many serial killers uh, actually are into this sort of really, really extreme deviant sexual stuff. I mean, everybody thinks, oh, yeah, so Dahmer, you know, he killed gay people and, uh, you know, John Wayne Gacy was into bondage. Well, this is a recurring theme and it's not just a recurring theme about that. It's a recurring theme that involves a, a different profile from what most people think is a serial killer. In fact, really in most of these cases, what, what's turning up over time and, and in the last couple of years, actually a huge amount of evidence has turned up in many of these cases to prove that they had accomplices. Uh, I'm speaking of the, the famous serial killers here, the last and the probably the most famous, say 24 or 25 in the U.S. Um, many of them, if not all of them, have direct connection to cults or satanic cults or occult philosophy. Most of the cases involve the uh, the, the practice of filming it, which could su suggest uh, you know snuff films or black market uh, production of these kinds of films. And that often, as I said, includes uh, torture and bondage stuff. Uh, for example, you could think of the toy box killer uh, Parker. Parker had a literal satanic cult that he ran for many many years. It involved uh, you know, to filming the torture that he did women and people that he abducted. And he said it was intentionally to create sex slaves and he had studied how to do this. So that's what I'm getting at here is that, that many of these people are involved in that, all of that kind of stuff, as well as accomplices. He was the head of a satanic cult. Uh, and that many of these people have themselves had traumatic experiences, molestation, the disassociative identity disorder and, or some form of military training in many cases, in fact, you know, we don't really live, uh, you know, nowadays in the heyday of serial killers. That was, I guess, in the 70s and 80s and a few in the 90s, like BTK. But um, many of these people, you know, had Vietnam uh, wartime service or they were in the military during that time period. And uh, that is relevant because here you have people with, you know, training to be killers. And we do know that there are multiple programs that the Army had, the uh, Phoenix program, that uh, which is concocted by the CIA to create in Vietnam. Uh, that's a, a known admitted program. And we have uh, programs uh, like uh, the Tom, uh, the Thomas Narrow, who was a Navy uh, psychologist, who spoke about the Navy's program to recruit uh, psychopaths for unknown and unspecified training programs. So we, we, those are admitted things. Uh, we have MKUltra as well. So we know this goes on, but most people don't know that, that this is very prevalent, very prominent in these uh, famous serial killer stories. In fact, not only is all that the case, they also in many, times, in many cases connect to high-level military and intelligence uh, people as well as to organized crime figures. So the, the mainstream story that probably everybody wants to question about somebody like Oswald, right, as this lone patsy. Well, guess what? In the case of the serial killers, uh, they're not all just organic, random wackos and killers. In, in many cases, they uh, have very significant backgrounds and connections that are just overlooked or swept under the rug. Yeah, you know, what's coming to mind is Kaczynski being a uh, part of psychedelic experiments at Harvard University and how that traumatized him and affected him and he turned into the Unabomber. Um, 
so you've done some study into the blackmail system, uh, you know, for example, the Epstein uh, and these snuff films and everything and how this ties into, you know, also the dark religion. Um, it's fascinating to me that you're saying that some of these elite, they basically are atheists and they just uh, are on an ego trip and they want to mix technology and be their own gods and all this stuff. But there's another group of them. You mentioned Aleister Crowley. Um, they are, are very steeped in uh, dark spirituality, like channeling spirits and, you know, believing in, in a Satan or whatever. So can you tell us a little bit about what you've observed about the Epstein Island, the temple, um, any data points you have regarding any uh, blackmail system from Ghislaine Maxwell's father or from from herself? Right. So uh, her father, Robert Maxwell, who had, you know, a publishing empire during the Cold War, uh, I mean, he was doing the same types of operations during the Cold War. So he's kind of the predecessor to what Epstein was doing uh, in more recent times. And those are not the only operations like that. There have been many, many operations like this. Of course, probably most people have heard of the Franklin cover-up, which involved people like Craig Spence, uh, you know, doing similar operations in the U.S. to entrap people, to blackmail them. We know that in the case of Savile uh, and the uh, houses of ill repute that British intelligence was using to blackmail people as well, um, uh, those are uh, comparable cases, uh, Penn State, um, there are comparable cases that relate to the CIA uh, using uh, blackmail and compromise uh, information in regard to Operation Midnight Climax when they were doing uh, MKUltra tests on unwitting Johns who were visiting mafia-connected whorehouses. So uh, those are all uh, easy off-the-cuff examples. But again, I mean, these, these are... These are things that maybe are just now coming out, but they've actually been written about for many, many years. In fact, multiple DC madams have written books, or excuse me, the DC madam and then Henry Benson has written a book. So there's a lot of this in the literature, but most people just aren't with the literature, so they don't know about how a lot of these cases are connected. And in fact, you see the same thing in the Roman Catholic world as well, where a lot of these high-level uh, high prelates uh, for many, many decades have actually been compromised and bribed so that they will go along with uh, geopolitical or intelligence-created uh, narratives. Um, they'll vote in a certain direction. They'll side with the U.S. I mean, we're seeing this right now with uh, the Patriarch uh, of Constantinople um, and what he's decided to do in terms of the U.S. and the Ukraine, uh, siding with whatever the State Department says. I mean, this is, this is just classic uh, espionage and compromise operations. Again, it's it's not anything new if you've read history, but I guess, you know, a lot of people just don't, aren't aware of these things. So, yeah, sometimes it's blackmail, sometimes it's compromise, sometimes it's, um, you know, a way to degrade people and, and, and see how far they'll go uh, in order to be part of this system. And so, you know, really to rise up in the ranks requires a high degree of, of moral compromise, and that's for a reason. And you see the signs of this, like the black eyes, you know, it seems like every Hollywood person and high level politician ends up with some kind of black eye. You know, I'm 36 years old. I've never had a black eye in my whole life. And yet these people always turn up with a black eye. Um, it's really weird. And, and I'm wondering, uh, also, I've, I've noticed uh, other signs from politicians like Barack Obama uh, where they have a cut in the finger 
that seems to indicate something related to spirit cooking uh, as well. So there are some of these signs. I even saw on the house floor, Mitch McConnell got freaked out because someone showed a triangle um, signal to him and he, he like immediately had some type of visceral reaction to it. Uh, so there's some something going on behind the scenes. Uh, you know, an interesting anecdote is that Joe Scarborough, you know, before he got into politics, you'll never guess what he did. He was in charge of kitty pageant shows. That was his career. And um, so it just shows that that's possibly was his inroad to uh, to prostitute children through those pageants. Uh, and uh, and sure enough, once he got into politics, he was also accused of murder. Um, you know, and, and so this guy, this guy doesn't seem to be very clean. He seems to be deep state. What you seem to be describing with the Catholic Church, though, is like a deep church that there's they're kind of two churches that are concurrently running at the same time, just like we have a kind of a bureaucratic government with the low level people going along. They don't know anything about the deeper power structure. And then you have this other deep state that we call it that, that uh, has other sets of uh, uh, its own culture. Can you speak on that? Yeah, I think to a degree, empires have always been run this way with an inner core of secret people and then an outer facade of people that take the heat uh, that, you know, are sort of the dupes and the puppets. Um, so that's, again, an old, an old way to run empires. But uh, in, in regard to the uh, present day, I think that when, you know, we saw the creation of the national security state, the, uh, the creation of the OSS, the creation of the CIA and all that back in the in the 40s. Um, that was really the the beginning point of uh, a real change in the country because a few decades before that, they had been planning to transition the country uh, out of an uh, industrial economy to a service-based economy. That was planned a long time ago. And so that also then moved us out of a non-intervention status uh, the, the CFR, Trilateral Commission, all those things were set up to basically transition the U.S. back into this uh, global imperial uh, player. And that was what, you know, the, the founding fathers wanted to avoid because they knew it would kind of lead to the disintegration of the nation state. So here we are, we're in that situation now. And for, you know, the last 70 years, you've had the buildup uh, of this uh, superstructure deep state that is a government within a government. And you're absolutely right that they have a amount of power. They are, um, they're they're not synonymous with intelligence agencies. They're above that, and so they have you know key people in those agencies, and it's more of a top down structure than it is. Oh, everybody's in on some conspiracy. No, it doesn't work like that. It's more so that there are um, higher level people, steering committees, groups that have a, a say so that that filters down. And so that's why you'll see a lot of the same people involved in, you know, the Fortune 100. Well, they go to uh, Bilderberg uh, and those are the same people that go to the CFR meetings and those are the same people that go to the Trilateral Commission. Right. So that's the kind of the way it works is that, you know, they just have these uh, yearly steering committee meetings and they set the global policy and they've decided, I guess, to just become more and more public about it. Uh, so in the last uh 10, 20 years, if you followed all this material and if you researched it, and then you've seen just kind of the open, you know, what was uh, even a conspiracy theory two years ago, Swab just says it openly. He says, yes, we want to put microchips under your skin. Yes, we're going to track and trace everything you do. 
You're going to eat bugs. You're not going to get meat. You won't own any property. All that's going to be taken away and you're going to like it. I mean, literally just right out of 1984 and Brave New World. Uh, so, you know, they've been planning. It's This is not something they just came up with, right? I mean, one thing I've done is lectures on these topics, uh, lecturing through 50 plus of their books, the elite's own writings describing their plans from the last century. So when you've read about 50 of those books, you see that it's a coordinated plan. There's no doubts about it. They might have disagreements on the different playbooks, how to get to the end goal, but the, the overall plan is absolutely the same. And it's the creation of order that will massively depopulate the earth uh it's great research is just one of the ways to describe the phases in this process right to get us to that end goal of most of the population being being uh removed and uh switching over to a fourth type of a fourth industrial civilization which is ai and tech it seems like the incrementalism that they were doing for decades uh, was working really well, but now it seems the progress has been come, become so aggressive, it's actually waking people up. Uh, one example of this is when Microsoft tried to have the spirit cooking madam on their commercial and celebrate her as some kind of modern artist. And then, you know, it was on YouTube and there were like hundreds of thousands of angry moms and dads who were like, why, are you, why is Microsoft promoting Satanism? And so they just pulled the ad immediately. Uh, so that didn't work out. And just in general, it seems like there's just been this real acceleration. Why do you think there's an acceleration? Do you think it's because they're losing or they're winning? Uh, I think the acceleration is uh, done because they think that um, society has been degraded to this to a certain extent to where it, they're not worried about it anymore. So, th So one of the things that the psychological warfare techniques of demoralization degradation of the population one of the things it does is that it makes the population unable to uh respond or to oppose tyranny precisely because the population has been enslaved to their passions so this is why the promotion of degeneracy is so important is that it actually just enslaves the population to their own desires and to their own uh, passions and and that's an old uh, technique an old strategy um, it's ultimately, you know, satanic, sure, but just from a strategy uh, uh, standpoint, you think back to, you know, drug war, right? I mean, people have flooded other countries with drugs. Everybody knows about opium wars, uh, and that was to demoralize and, and destroy the population. And so we're seeing that now in our country, right? We've, we've seen the importation of drugs. We've seen the, actually the whole drug war is nothing but a giant psychological warfare operation. Uh, and Vietnam played a, a huge role in that, by the way. And I believe that was all intentional. It was intentional, uh, Vietnam ultimately to be an attack on America, believe it or not. So that was the whole war was a psychological warfare operation to change the mind and patterns of America and American living, changing images of man, which is one of the famous uh, white paper documents that describes this type of social engineering. So ultimately, it is to demoralize and atomize the situation, the, the, the public. Once you understand what, if you look at this like a an attempt to uh, by a foreign power to bring down the existing structure, and it all makes sense. Oh, okay, yes, that's why they promote inversion. That's why they promote degradation. That's why they promote atomism, alienation. Uh, uh, cutting everyone off from their uh, friends and family. Uh, everything starts to make sense. So I think that they kind of put themselves in a position where they believe that 
the elite I'm speaking of, the technocrats, that we're at a stage where it's absolutely necessary to capitalize on what has happened. And that's why, you know, Klaus writes books like COVID, The Great Reset, talking about how this is this is the opportunity that we have been waiting for. You know, they weren't waiting for it. It was actually planned for a long time, uh, right? I mean, these yeah. kinds of operations, these big scale operations, take years and years and years of planning. And if you've read the white paper documents that uh, we did a whole documentary at InfoWars on this uh, a big uh, interview um, about the SPARS document, that was just one of many documents, including uh, Claydex, including Crimson Step, as well as SPARS and others. These show uh, years and years and years of wargaming and planning, Event 201, right? All of those show that this was absolutely planned. Uh, and and so, yeah, it, it makes perfect sense to us when we read books like Klaus's books uh, that this was planned. And, and, and there's, again, there's an intentional desire to throw it in your face. And that's why they uh, they they put it out there. Uh, they don't they believe they don't have to hide it anymore. And not only that, they put it in your in our faces to demoralize us. Yeah, it seems like they're trying to initiate us into their own kind of sick perverted, uh, you know, cult. Uh, some examples of that would be like Netflix putting out that pe pe soft pedophilia movie, The Cuties. And um, you mentioned alienating people from their friends and family. Uh, I have a two-year-old child and we try to put on some educational cartoons and almost all of them involve a child alone, no parents, surrounded by robots. And I just think that's such an artificial reality and they can even have it be educational and have it be nothing in your face about it that's uh, negative or, or you know weird, except for what I just mentioned, the isolation, making a child feel like it's a normal reality to only be surrounded by machines. And the, the biggest reset thing that I noticed during COVID-19 was the fact that everybody went to remote working, like our entire economy shifted to Zoom communication immediately. Like, and we were like all primed for it and ready for it. We had the equipment and everything. We had the software and it's just like an amazing transition that occurred so fast. And, and now we're living in a completely different reality just a couple months later. Um, I want to ask you about the power structure of what you're talking about, because you mentioned a lot of, you know, the deep state and the deep church and cults and a lot of different things. Uh, but what's at the very top of the pyramid? You know, um, I'm familiar with the Q Intel drops. They talk about the house of Rothschild being significant. Uh, you know, are there ancient families involved? Like, tell us about the power structure. Well, I mean, I, I don't have any, I've never promoted Q and I don't have any connection to that. So I, I don't know about that, but um, just from their own writings and from their own books and from history. Uh, yeah, there are, there are powerful banking families out of Europe. There are uh, black nobility families that have been around for a long time that have had a lot of influence in uh, entities like the Vatican. Uh, there are, uh, you know, really powerful nowadays technocrats. So, I mean, there's a confluence of interests. Um, Rothkot wrote a book, uh, about the managerial class, uh, about the 6,000 manager people who run the, the world order. And then above them sits kind of these higher level families and elites. So yeah, it's absolutely, uh, it's not a conspiracy theory. It's just, it's just basic history. And so, yeah, I think when we're looking at the, uh, Rockefellers, the Rothschilds, the JP Morgans, or these are the, the, these big families that have, 
that have run the world for so long. I mean, even Carol Quigley wrote that uh, the 20th century's world wars were essentially planned by the banking elite. And so uh, th that's not separate or other than the technocratic tech elite. Uh, those, those groups are the same. Uh, they all have the same goals and plans. And so when you have centuries of uh, uh, fractional reserve banking, centuries of putting nations into debt, uh, you can, you know, gain control of the world. So it really is kind of that simple in one way that uh, they just gain control of the world through uh, controlling the power of money printing. And then via that, which is all admitted, by the way, in Quigley's book in the first few chapters, then they were able to uh, structure the world wars such that it would exhaust and basically d destroy any of the potential for example was its world wars and cold war was the the way to deplete and destroy uh, the holy roman empire and russia the only two potential uh, opposition to the western power structure through those wars that was the whole purpose of the of the two world wars uh, and the cold war the third world war and by doing so this left only the so-called democratic western elites uh, in charge uh, that's what the book Tragedy and Hope is about. The tragedy is the two, is the world wars, and then the hope is Western democratic capitalism. Well, we don't live in Western democratic capitalism. That's just part of the propaganda, right? That's that's all a bunch of baloney. It's essentially a completely uh, a tyrannical um, pleasure cronyism uh, based <laughs> hedonistic, yeah, uh, brave new world basically. So, um, so that's what they want, and that's what they, they're absolutely intent on bringing in. And now it's all open. It's all just 100% admitted by these people. And, you know, I, we've been talking about Davos for a long time. I was making videos on Davos years and years and years ago. And even I'm surprised uh, at how open they are now. But in regard to the children being raised by robots, uh, a few years ago, one of the Global League books I did a talk on was uh, Jacques Attali's book, Brief History of the Future. Jacques Attali is the Kissinger of France, right? So he's no uh, no small time figure. He's trained, I think, you know, he's been the mentor to basically several, like Mitterrand or Francois Hollande, multiple French presidents, basically. And you know, Attali said a long time ago, uh, famously, it was going around a couple of weeks ago that there would be a big pandemic. He said, I think he said in the '90s or the 2000s, there would be a pandemic. There would be mass, uh, you know, forced inoculations. It would all be for depopulation. And uh, some people took issue with that quote as if that was impossible that he could have said that. Well, I've read his books and he says basically the same stuff in his books. So I don't see why it would be outlandish or impossible that he, he said that in an interview, because in Brief History of the Future, he basically says, uh, yeah, you're going to uh, in a few decades. Now, he wrote that in 2006. He says in a few decades, robots will raise your children. You won't have anything to do with it. You'll be removed from this process and they will. That's literally what he says. So let's talk about the counterforce to this, because we know there are more good people than bad in the world, and that there are certainly uh, powerful people. Uh, there's a certain billionaire real estate developer from New York who's coming to mind. There are certain you know, powerful families and powerful institutions, uh, perhaps certain militaries or maybe even some intelligence agencies that are actually counter to this type of... Uh, uh, deep state type of agenda. So can you tell us about that, the counter power structure? Well, I mean, we've had a lot of, uh, you know, Hungary, Orban, these places uh, amounting some uh, degree of uh, opposition. Uh, perhaps you could argue even elements in Russia, perhaps 
Um, uh, yes, I think people within the American powers, people are, are starting to realize that this is not going to be good for 99.999% of the population. And as things get worse, more and more people will realize that as well, right? So the, the good part about things getting bad is that more people will realize that, hey, uh, we, we're being lied to. This is all a bunch of baloney. And it's not going to be good for most of us. But, uh, you know, it, there's a lot of delusions that go along with evil. And when you're really convinced and, and hardened in evil, you're completely deluded. So you might be able to get certain things done and have power. But that doesn't mean that the system that you're bringing in or that your worldview is correct or that it's going to be the one that actually works. In fact, in many cases, we've seen, you know, uh, tyrants, delusional, uh, uh, wicked leaders. They try to force these systems into reality. A great example would be communism, Sovietism. And then it doesn't work. And it doesn't work because they're not based in reality. Right. What does what does O'Brien say? The party is reality. The party is truth. We make truth. OK, but that doesn't that that might work in theory or when you're doing, you know, your your torture. But when you actually try to implement that in the world, it doesn't work. And so uh, these things usually fall. And that's why they want to remove human choices from the equation and have it be run by delusion, because you can't have a completely robotic system. It doesn't work. And you also can't perfectly combine humans with robots it's all just silly it's all science fiction in the sense of downloading your consciousness to, to a computer or some of this nonsense so it's all based on a lot of lies and delusion but it's enough lie and delusion that people actually believe it a lot of these silicon valley people for example you mentioned secret societies when they go to burning man they will actually participate in the and burning man has its own inner core of secret society i'm not joking by the way i didn't even believe this when i heard it uh, Elon Musk, right, the, the the big social media company elite, they go and they will they blow their minds out on uh, DMT, acid, all kinds of things. They participate in rituals. They literally believe that they are a Luciferian elite that's going to transcend humanity and become gods through their tech. That's what they believe. Okay, just because you have computers doesn't mean you're going to be a Terminator. It doesn't mean that you're going to be able to do this stuff. So, yeah, I mean, it's just it's just absurd when you actually think about it uh, and you, you can't you can't base a system that's theoretical and force it in the world and expect the world to conform to your system. I totally agree with that. You know, I used to work in China and, uh, you know, for the last uh, decade or so, we've been trained to have be fearful of the rise of China. And when I had my boots on the ground there, I was not afraid. You know, I, I saw a society where a lot of the basic, uh, basic things we take for granted, like driving, people there don't even have the sense of autonomy to be able to do that very well. And uh, the, the decision-making process in corporate China is so hierarchical that they can't do anything creative. Uh, you know, is basically they're not real competition to the West is what I'm trying to get at here. Just like you said, how the Soviet system just eventually fell apart and failed uh, because it's too hierarchical. There's too many benefits to the democratic kind of way of doing things. Um, so, yeah, I do. I do see this whole agenda as destined to fail, but I'm hoping that there are some really big institutions that step up, you know, like the U.S. military or something like that. Um, are there any specific institutions you want to mention that you would be hopeful that they would kind of counter in a more formal way? 
Well, I, I'm an Orthodox Christian, so uh, I don't really put a whole lot of hope and trust in the government per se, but uh, I do think that Orthodox Christianity has the best potential for being the, the, the main and really ultimately the only force that uh, can adequately oppose what, what we're dealing with, because number one, it's not the Roman Catholic Church, so it's decentralized. It can't totally be uh, corrupted from the top down. You can have... Uh, governments and intelligence agencies that try to corrupt the things the thing about the history of the orthodox church is that no matter how many times the, the governments have tried to corrupt it it doesn't work it doesn't stamp out so so that's my hope is ultimately you know in in terms of uh, uh a, a an accurate biblical approach to these problems as opposed to just political but uh i don't think that um that excludes uh, people within uh, military or within other important positions from uh, being points of opposition to the system. Absolutely. So, uh, in fact, I yes. think that what's I think what becomes evident, just from my perspective, in terms of being a student of philosophy, is that you need more than um, just news cycles. And I'm not critiquing anybody in particular, but people need an actual worldview from which to approach the world. And they need one that's consistent and coherent, logical, meaningful, that gives uh, meaning to their lives and to the way they live and to you know why you have a family, why you do these things. And so it needs to be something powerful, potent, historical, uh, and eschatolo eschatological. Uh, and Orthodox Christianity fits that bill much better than Protestantism or Roman Catholicism, in my view. That's my take. So that's what I would say. Well, I appreciate your your opinion on that. And it really addresses the moral decay. And you can see that uh, uh, communism and fascism, they always try to stamp out that spirituality. And we're, we're dealing with a spiritual war here. And so we need to have a spiritual uh, our spiritual weaponry to, to deal with this. And so I do think there's a spiritual answer. And um, when we look at how our society is being degraded through the media and the perversion and sexuality and stuff they're trying to push on us, it's ultimately our moral and our spiritual purity that's going to be our defense against that. And uh, so, yeah, yeah I, fact, I, I, go ahead. Well, there's an amazing section, and I was mentioning Jacques Attali's book, Brief History of the Future. There's actually a section where he's worried, he's scared. He says, what we are doing uh, could, around the time of 30, 40, cause a massive reaction by which people will adopt traditional biblical views of God and country. So he actually says, right. I'm kidding, he says, we have, he says, our main concern is that we have to be worried about uh, a return to uh, uh, God and country, uh, and he, he even calls it theocracy. I'm not sure what he means, but he probably just means anything really that has any kind of you know uh, belief in God. Uh, he says that's our main concern. So the way that this is going to wake a lot of people up, and they know a lot of people are going to return to Christianity, uh, return to the Bible, this kind of stuff, and they're actually worried about that. So that's a good that's a good sign that at least uh, you know Jacques Attali admits that in his book. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Jay. And uh, there is cause for hope. You know, we have hope in Christ and uh, I see a revival coming and uh, it's great that you're exposing the devices of, of, uh, of evil in the world. And thank you for your time today, Jay. Absolutely. Thank you.
All right, everyone. Thank you so much. That was an amazing interview. We really went on a deep dive there. Uh, I appreciate everyone in the audience being willing to go down the rabbit hole with us and explore these topics. Uh, so join us Monday through uh, Thursday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern, and we're going to keep on giving you the breaking news, going behind the news, connecting the dots. Uh, God bless everyone. We'll see you next time. Pete Santilli, 7 p.m. Eastern.